0: the prophets is that it's not it's not really about you except for that it is and that's the hard part is trying to see how even though it's not about you it is and to not misapply that so you think it's more about you than it is but that it's rightly about you as it should be so isaiah specifically is about God rejecting Jerusalem as the head of a nation established on this planet in God's name. And God is saying throughout Isaiah, this isn't going to last much longer. I'm going to sweep it all away. And he's also saying regularly, but if you repent, generation that's listening to me, it doesn't have to happen during your lifetime. And in fact, that's what happens. At the heart of the book, Hezekiah the king brings it all back together. They repent and right as they're about to be destroyed by their enemies, as the Rabshakeh of Assyria is outside the gates shouting in Hebrew, don't let your king deceive you, your God sent me to kill you. Right then, God sends his angel hosts as Hezekiah prays and Isaiah preaches to wipe off that army and send them running back home. But that doesn't mean that everything Isaiah said about how their lack of repentance is going to bring about their destruction. It happens just a couple generations later. Jeremiah is the book that gets to be written during the actual happening of it. Okay, So, so the whole thing is very, very clearly about the destruction of Jerusalem and Judea in the age of the kings. But then it's about so much more than that. And if I can jump from where it narrowly is about to the widest level, the furthest reaches that it's about, it's about how mankind was created in a perfect garden, given everything we need to be able to survive and thrive in peace and prosperity forever, and we turned our back on God walked away from his precious care and were thus cursed with thorns and trials, sweat and pain and eventually death. And that's only the beginning of the birth pain because God has every intention of completely destroying this place in fire and brimstone and everlasting destruction. But it doesn't have to happen to you, to your generation. You can believe in the salvation of Jesus Christ, who he is risen. Hallelujah. which means not only that God will stave off for your lifetime hell, but you will never go to hell, and a new heavens and a new earth is going to be brought as this earth goes to hell for you to dwell in everlasting innocence and righteousness and blessedness under the good King, Jesus Christ. That's also what this is about. It's a picture of that. The destruction of Jerusalem is a picture of the destruction of the world and God's ability to save from that destruction is a picture of Jesus Christ's work to save you. Narrow, broad. But then you have the space in between. A space where you have how this applies to your individual life, how this applies to your family, meaning those you're related to by blood, who who you still talk to on a regular basis, you share history with? How does this apply to your town, to your state, to your your, nation, if we can call it that? And this is doubly convoluted because of the history of the United States. Uh, I remember taking a class in in, uh, undergraduate. My, My undergraduate degree was in English, with an emphasis in creative writing which i it's a very easy way to get a's honestly but um i did have to take some real english classes and and one of the classes that i took was american literature not just literature american literature and so it went back and we had to read through early american writings there's not a lot by the way most of it's puritans And I got a real heavy dose of what those early settlers of this country believed they were doing. And you can see it in much of the flag-waving mom-and-apple-pie beliefs about Captain America still here today. That we were establishing in history God's country. A country of Christians, for Christians, with Christian ideals. And we would therefore be blessed by God in all that we would do should we prove faithful yet I forget now which of the actual writers who wrote this, but there's one of the preachers. You'd know his name if I said it. And he's writing, he said, but if we should turn our backs, all the curses written in the old covenant will come upon us as a nation. I don't know if that's actually true. I know it's true they said this. I know it's true that they thought this. I don't know if it actually is true that we are God's country at all. In fact, I would say we're probably not, never have been. Uh, we've been filled with all sorts of liars and deceivers and thieves from the very beginning, not to say all the Puritans were, but, you know, those those trading companies that were transporting uh, tobacco and sugar and people across the sea, I mean, they weren't exactly Christian people at that point, right? So the idea that we can just take this and wholeheartedly apply it to our nation is kind of just dead wrong, but that's what makes it so convoluted because it's not entirely dead wrong to do this to every nation there ever was. The fact is, if you tip your scale with an uneven balance, that is, if you lie, cheat, steal, do wicked things, eventually that scale is going to fall over, no matter who you are, whether you say you're doing it in the name of God or not. And if you're saying you're doing it in the name of God, the real God, guess what? He's not going to let you do evil in his name for very long. That's the surest sign you are going to get crushed. The worst thing our presidents do is say, God bless America, and then not listen to his word. That's the worst thing they do. They blaspheme when they say that. In God, we trust on the money. No, we don't. It's blasphemy. That's the threat right there. You know All the rest of it about how we're becoming a modern Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, that, that's, that should be scary no matter what. Because no matter what nation you are, if you destroy your children, you don't have a future. You don't have to, have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. If you destroy your children, you don't have a future. So the challenge here then again is, especially as we're going to look at chapter 5, of Isaiah, where he's going to lay out some very specific things that they're doing that he thinks God thinks are evil and are why his punishment is coming, you're not going to be able to help but be like, oh my, that sounds like us. And what I don't want you to do is misinterpret the text to be about the United States, but neither do I want you to not think it has nothing to do with us. If we do evil, evil will result so when God says, my church is a church of repentance that bears fruit in keeping with repentance, well, then we who hear this need to not just walk away as if, well, wasn't that a nice story. You need to walk away as people who are going to reform right? our own lives. That's where it gets to your family, right, your own person, uh, wherein you don't want to be those uh, well, who don't hear these words and believe them. All right, so. Isaiah chapter five, page 569 of your pew Bible, the opening section, the song of the vineyard. It is a parable. It's a whole lot like Jesus of Nazareth's parable of the tenants or parable of the vineyard. I'm not going to retell that for you now, but maybe you'll hear the overlap. Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved, my song, my love song, excuse me, concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. A story about a very pretty place. Now, again, he's gonna tell us in a few moments. This is Jerusalem, this is Judah, this is the nation of Israel established at Mount Sinai. Okay, but but imagine all of that now as this gorgeous you know winery. Have you go on wine tasting anywhere ever, you know, you see it, they lay it out so pretty. You drive in through the hills, and then you've got the little building up on top. You can sit out, eat your cheese, sip your wine, it's beautiful. My beloved, God did this. That's when he made Jerusalem. He dug it and cleared it of stones. It is, he made the soil that was already fertile even better. It's a lot of work to dig stones out of your yard. You ever done that? Right. So this isn't easy. It wasn't like he just kind of laid back. He worked to make it good. He planted it with choice vines, not bad seed, good seed. And he went and bought the expensive stuff so that it could grow well. He then built a watchtower in the midst of it. He's expecting other people to want to take it from him. He thinks it's going to be so good, someone will want to steal it. So he built defenses for it, yeah? Hewed out a wine bat, that means he thinks there's going to be a lot of grapes. He's expecting some produce, yeah? And he looked for it to yield grapes. Uh, the Hebrew here means like good wine grapes, but it yielded, it says wild grapes. Uh, you would be better as an English speaker to hear that as sour grapes, right? It means bad grapes, grapes that are not cultivated, grapes you would not want to make wine out of. They're not good enough for that. They're not raisins. They're not nothing. You won't eat these. Feed them to the the fox, I guess, or something like that, right? So I looked for, I did all this work and I looked for it to produce. And it did produce, but it produced the opposite of what it was supposed to produce. Verse three, oh, now inhabitants of Inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. Huh? That's God saying, Do you think what happened is fair? Do you think the fall was fair to me, God? Huh? Do you think Jerusalem rebelling against me with my name placed there and all these promises like was that fair to me, God? And you want to apply this to the United States for now. Is it fair to say we're a Christian nation while we do the things we do? No, it's not fair to God. So he's, he's asking you be honest, judge what you see rightly. And then what more, verse four, what more could God have done? What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? And that could be applied to paradise. What more could he have done for Adam and Eve? Nothing that applies to Judah and Jerusalem, what more could he have done than David's kingdom and Solomon's kingdom? And yet at the pinnacle of that, what do they do? They worship idols. Why? For the sake of the flesh. That's why. What more could he have done? And now this does culminate ultimately for all of history in the death of Jesus Christ. What more can God do than enter into the sinful condition that we're in and kill it in himself? So now for those who will not believe in that judge between God and them, what more can he do? He's done it all already, right? uh, And he repeats then in end of verse four, when I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Why did it yield only bad? You hear a little bit of God's own flabbergastedness in this. What's up with evil people? I don't even get it, he says in a sense, Yeah. But I won't dwell with it. I won't put up with it. So, verse five. I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove his hedge. It shall be devoured. I'll break down his wall. It shall be trampled. Right? The hedge and the wall. That's what keeps the animals out. Yeah. And you get the deer in your garden. You know what that's like, right? So, so you take down that hedge and let it. I'm going to let it go. Go ahead, deer. Eat it up. I'll make it a waste. I'm gonna intentionally destroy it. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up in it. More so since I'm God, I'm not just gonna remove the wall and and tear it down. I'm gonna command the clouds to not rain upon it. Make it a complete wasteland. Again, this is the threat to Jerusalem. This is the reality of the fall. This is the precipice. The church of Jesus Christ always stands on. In every nation, when we forget God's word, and think that this whole thing's just a game to make a show of our piety while we do not believe in righteousness, in justice, in truth, and in, of course, uh, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He does in verse 7 says this what I just said again, you know, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Right? And you, you can hear that as the church too. I haven't really emphasized that part enough, just as you see. The creation, just as you see Jerusalem, just as you see nations in history that claim the name of God. Well, what is the real nation that claims the the name of God now? It's not the U.S. It's not any other nation on the planet. It is the church of God, the congregations which gather in his name. That is who his vineyard is. And so also congregations should not expect to thrive or survive or have their pews full or be blessed with good people if they reject the word of God. You can't be Christians without the Bible. The rest of that verse, verse seven, is kind of a neat little pun. It says, he looks for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, outcry. Both the word justice and bloodshed sound the same in Hebrew. He looks for mishpots, but he found mishpak. mishpach. Yeah, can you hear that? And then the same is true for righteousness and outcry. He looks for zedekah, but he found zed You can kind of hear it. There's a pun. But then there's more than that because Mishpat and Zedek, measurement and accuracy, judgment and justice are two absolute foundational ideas for what it means to be good as opposed to evil. Good judgment is good and bad judgment is evil. And the best parable i have for this is is, honestly has to do with like building stuff okay so if you're gonna go build something in your garage and you get your measuring tape and you measure out three feet and you do it again you do it again you do it again and you're measuring for something that's in your house but used a different measuring tape for that you measured with one big stretch how many feet you needed and now you use this other one three feet three feet three feet If those two different measuring tapes don't have the same measurement, if it's bad mishpat, you're going to go put that cabinet in and it ain't going to fit. That's the meaning of the word. And then when you go and put the cabinet in, it doesn't fit. Guess what? It wasn't accurate as a result of the bad measurement. That's the word zedek, righteousness, right? So good judgment leads to good righteousness. Good measurement leads to accuracy. And this applies to every level of creation from what you're doing in your kitchen cabinets to what it means to atone for the sins of the world with the meat and right sacrifice at the fullness of time. Because the good measurement is the flesh and blood of the son of man and the true righteousness is his atoning death and resurrection on your behalf. It applies to all of this and what God is saying is I look at my church in Jerusalem at that time, they don't got any of it. They can maybe parrot a little bit about how they have Abraham as their father. Oh, we're Lutherans. Or even, oh, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. And yet when they go to measure, they measure with lies. And when they go to do righteousness, they do it for themselves. Yeah, And he sees this. And he says, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. Now, in the following verses, he's going to get a bit more specific. He's gonna really talk about some of the wicked practices that were going on. Verse eight, woe to those who join house to house who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. That is, that's your goal. Is I'm gonna have so much money, so much land and I can drive up my five acre driveway to my great mansion where no one can ever come to me. But then you got all these other people, they got nowhere to go because all the land has been taken by just a few. Now, I, I don't want to get too picky, but that's kind of the game here in America. Have you noticed that? Land ownership is the game. And getting more, that, that's what the wealthy do. That's how they get around inflation eventually. I mean, the stock market's got its way to play. You can get your portfolio and all this. That, that's fine. They do that too. But where do they really sink that money? They sink it in the land uh, until they own it all until everyone else has to rent. Uh, it's not so different here. Now, what's the real condemnation? Greed. Greed is the condemnation. That's the problem, is greed. No. Uh, the, verse nine, uh, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and an omer of seed shall yield but an ephah. So you know, his threat is, you think you're going to be safe by buying more and more and more and having bigger and bigger and bigger. It's not going to work out. Your big mansion is going to be empty because I'm going to send a famine, right? You're not going to be able to get food. That's what verse 10 is about. Uh, 10 acres of uh, a vineyard and one bath. This is like three gallons of wine off, off the 10 acres. And the Omer received eating an ephah. An ephah is like a day's amount of, of, uh, of flour. And an ephah is, again, uh, I think it's like, a, like three months, something like that, right? Uh, so you're having a lot that you're putting in, but I'll say it this way with the ephah. You're getting less out of the soil than you're putting into the soil, literally with those measurements, right? And so again, what he's saying is there's going to be a famine. And where will all your gold and silver be when you can't eat it? And he's saying this to Jerusalem again, but you know it's hard not to hear that a little bit now, right? And I don't know, huh? Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as the wine inflames them. Verse 12, they have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of Jesus or see the work of his hands, huh? So it's not just a condemnation against drunkenness by itself. I mean, drunkenness is a problem. Being drunk isn't good for you. But the issue isn't just alcoholism. The issue is the desire to make merry and do all sorts of self-indulgence while the world is falling apart around you and you're not listening to what God says about anything. Now. The bigger issue is not regarding the deeds of Jesus, the deeds of the Lord, not attending to what the scriptures say, Uh, not not knowing what God has said at all, but running after the world. So to put this in very, very uh, kind of establishment language for us here, the problem is worldliness, worldliness as opposed to godliness. It's not that you can't throw a party and have a feast. The problem is when you think that's what life's about. What are you going to do if you can't have a feast? Let me use our sanctuary here for a moment. What would you do if you couldn't get a Christmas tree? Would it ruin Christmas for you? Would Jesus not have come? Would his death not mean anything? It's not Christmas without a tree. Really? Do you know what Christmas is? That's kind of the issue here, right? It's not that the tree is bad. It's that the worship of the tree is bad. The lack of worship of the truth is bad. So verse 13, therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge, right? They don't know the word of God. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst, right? A lack of truth is going to lead to collapse. Verse 14, therefore, shaol that's the grave, that's death, shall enlarge its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze in their pasture and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. I mean, it's just kind of one long continuation of chapters two, three, and four, right? Remember that bit about the women walking with outstretched necks from last week, right? It's the haughtiness, it's the arrogance, and it's not going to last. It's going to get torn down. So if you want to apply this immediately to our culture, the issue is that we're arrogant as a people, and we're going to walk headlong into something that's going to hurt a lot. And there's probably nothing that you as an individual or you as a member of this congregation can do about it except for believe that it's coming. Believe that when punishment comes upon the wicked, it's just. And that on the other side of God emptying all these mansions and destroying all these fields, the poor are able to have peace again. God's judgment against the wicked always results in it being better for the righteous. Always. He's not going to curse a wicked nation and not have it be good for the church in the long run. Okay? That's the hard thing to believe because I'm right there with you. I'd just as soon have my style of living continue. I like being a first world citizen. And it's hard for me to think that life could be better without, say, indoor plumbing. But I'll tell you what, if we're not killing children and cutting off their genitalia, it's better. And So if God's going to send some kind of curse upon us to stop that, well then, the faith in me is supposed to say, bring it. Bring it. But then the faith in me is also supposed to say, Jesus, have mercy. Make us repent. Help us see the truth. Let us just stop. I mean, we don't have to continue being evil. We can just stop doing the evil. And that's what the church does have the power to do, to be the people who do that. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Yeah? Verse 18 is more of the same. I know it's, it's, a, it's a heavy text. Yeah, a lot of law here today. Uh, verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Uh, Let's get to 19 in a moment. Start with just 18 again. The idea here is that you're so good at lying that you can tie a net around somebody else and have him caught. That's what the legal system's for in a lot of ways these days. Uh, Again, I don't want to make uh, anything that I say really be about our country it shouldn't be but i don't know if you've heard of the the collapse of i'm going to get it wrong now ftx i think that's what it is it's a major cryptocurrency exchange run by a like a like a young frat boy basically billions of dollars uh, in the caribbean mansions and things like this and he embezzled like like millions and millions and millions of dollars and he didn't just embezzle it uh, he took it as investment from Ukraine and put it into the Democratic Party's platform for this past election. And then it all collapsed. So all the money that was supposed to be there, that people that invested, not just Ukraine, but other people, it's it's just all gone. Guy's not arrested yet. He's getting interviewed by, by major networks. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Just see See how the liars lie and realize God's not going to put up with it. He's not. He's going to bring it down. And to those who say then, verse 19, let him be quick. This is the scoffer here. This is the one who hears like what I'm saying or what Isaiah is saying. They're like, well, if this is true, why doesn't God do it? Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let him come that we may know it right? They're scoffing. They're saying, I don't believe it. God isn't really going to do anything about this. Or you know how it's been said for many, many years now, but there's no God. We're just all evolved from monkeys, the big bang and all this stuff, right? Right? They're they're scoffing at the idea. He says, woe to you who say that. Woe to you who make a lot of noise with your mouth and think as a result, God isn't going to do what God said he's going to do. You're not going to talk him out of it, even though you justify yourself to yourself. And then verse 20, very famous. Luther made a big use of, of verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good. And that's as clear as it can get. They look at evil, they call it good. And who call good evil. You know, did you hear about this like defensive marriage act that just got passed? That doesn't defend marriage, it destroys marriage. And in fact, makes it potentially illegal for me to preach against homosexuality. Because they they re, they were refused to put into it a, uh, an amendment to protect the freedom of religion in it. Yeah, but but they sold it to you. Defense of Marriage Act—it's for the good. It's like the Inflation Reduction Act, right? I mean, if if they're lying all the time, and I'm not just talking about the government. I'm talking about everybody. You go to Walmart, and you're going to buy a bunch of plastic crap to hang on your tree. You have to throw out in three years. Guess what? You're going to buy more of it three years from now. Guess what? That's made of oil, petroleum. Oh, all the while we're going to have environmental friendliness, go green. They're lying through their teeth all over the place, and and whatever. Buy whatever plastic you want. What I want you to do is learn to say, Jesus, teach me to call good, good. Jesus, teach me to call evil, evil. Jesus, teach me to call light, light, and darkness, darkness, and may I not be deceived by the darkness, right? As opposed to those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise, in their own eyes right their measure is not the measurement of the word of god but it is the measurement of their own hearts woe to them and what i want us as a people here at st paul on this corner is to be a people who ask jesus to let us not be like them whatever may come whatever may come whatever else is going to be here let's measure with righteousness here let's measure with truth yeah woe to those who are wise in their own eyes verse 21 and shrewd in their own sight and he connects this to you know partying woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink and that's connected to verse 23 who acquit the guilty for a bribe just passed some no bail reform didn't we illinois yeah uh, they got the safety act. Now the cops can't remove intruders from your home because of the safety act. Uh-huh. Deprive the innocent of his right. Now, again, I, I'm not trying to say get involved in politics. I'm just trying to say, look, God's going to bring some fire on us because of this stuff. So, hey, let's ask him to spare us. Let's give our heart to that kind of prayer. As opposed to just kind of wave our hands in the air, that'll be fine. Let's hear the rebuke. Verse 24, you heard this read a little bit ago. As the tongue devours tongue of fire devours stubble, as the dry grass sinks down into flame, so their roots will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like the dust. All right, the idea here is just like straw is gonna burn up at the and in your backyard, and you put a little grass on your burn pile, it's gonna go right up. Well, so also those who look strong, who pretend to power, they're gonna collapse in an instant. They're going to go away very, very quickly. Why? Because they voted wrong? No. Because, rest of the verse, they have rejected the law of Jesus of hosts. Right? Law there. Torah. Torah. It means the word of God. It means everything God has said. And whenever anybody, anywhere, nation, state, family, church, does not matter? Whenever anybody, anywhere, rejects the word of God, they're building with straw. It's going to burn up in an instant. And it does happen in history. But remember how I started this whole thing. It's happening at the end of history. Yeah. We're people who are waiting for that end of history. When all the works are going to be burned up. And we're going to stand on the foundation laid. Which is Jesus Christ. Yeah. Again those who have rejected the law. Explaining that the law means the word. rest of the verse. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. It's as simple as they've rejected what the Bible says. And so let's be a people who hear that. No, I don't want to be that. I want to believe what the Bible says. Therefore, when you reject what the Bible says, verse 25, the anger of Jesus, the anger of the Lord, was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So, Remember, it's about Jerusalem. And he's talking about how, again, Assyria is going to come down. They're going to wipe out Judah. They're going to conquer cities. They're going to get to Jerusalem and start to starve them out. Jerusalem will repent, but eventually they won't repent. Babylon will come, and it will starve Jerusalem out. And the image here is that people are just dead in the streets. They're just just dead in the streets. And for all of that, God was still angry. It wasn't enough. To bear out against the iniquities which had been done. And this is where let's jump immediately. From the narrow of Jerusalem to the cross of Jesus Christ. Where indeed. His anger is finished. Where indeed all the iniquity has been paid for. It is done. For those who believe. But to those who do not believe. To those who the earthquake and the darkness on that great day is not enough of a sign. The fires of hell are still coming. It's not going to go away. And so you're either in the ark or you're not. You're either in the boat that's going to get through the flood or you're not. And that boat is the word of God. Absolutely, that word of God is Jesus of Nazareth. Crucified, raised, ascended, and returning very soon. So his hand is outstretched still, both to save you, handing you the bread and wine, which is his salvation. And also, over the, over the whole cosmos. With the wrath, the fire is coming one way or the other. And all the topsy-turvy about this nation and that nation stealing, cheating, lying, coming, crashing down, that's all just the beginnings of the birth pains. That's not even a thing. I mean, if we really live in a time when the U.S. is going to collapse, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Right? You hear people say, we will. you hear people say, well, I don't know. If we really live in a time when, when it does, that's not weird. That's, that's the important thing. It's not weird to have a nation fall apart. Happens all the time. Go check out Argentina, 2001, quite a thing quite a thing yeah it, it continues to happen in other places throughout the world what happened to syria just was it seven eight years ago and who cares who was involved in that was the u.s involved or not? doesn't matter the point is that it's normal it's normal for nations to be ruled by liars and cheats who gut the nation of its wealth and cause a collapse so let's be a people who pray for good leaders let be a people who, when we can lead where we do lead, lead with good measurement and seek to be accurate according to the word of God, knowing that his hand is stretched out to bring wrath upon the world, but that we've already been plucked like brands from the fire. We've already been buried in the wounds of Jesus Christ. So we have the freedom to honestly be set apart, be holy, be different. And part of that difference is to not fear when things collapse to stand amongst the ruins of the world with our heads lifted up and not squabbling on the ground over the scraps with everybody else. Yeah. To stand firm. Verse 26 says, he will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. This is definitely Assyria and Babylon coming to destroy And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, and the young lions, they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by the clouds. Just a terrifying picture of great armies coming upon you to destroy you, which again is exactly what happened to Judea, Jerusalem, in the age of the kings, and then again after Jesus was risen from the dead. He had prophesied that that new temple that was rebuilt, same thing was going to happen to them, and it did. The Roman armies surrounded that temple in 70 AD and completely crushed it, and to this day, it is not there. Rather, instead, you have a, a, heathen, a heathen temple, the mosque, uh, standing there instead. And so uh, this, again, as a picture of the whole cosmos being sent into hell, is meant to cause us as a people to wake up and pray for our congregation lest our congregation have the same thing happen to it in time, that we be cast out of the faith and lose our way in darkness and bitterness and evil. And then praying as a congregation that we be found faithful in our time, a generation down and a generation down, more Christians would still be here in this place. And as those Christians in this place, including you, seek the good of the city in which you dwell, the prayer is, of course, that God would spare the city from absolute collapse. And that the impact of good measurement and accurate talk and the wisdom of the Holy God would go out from your mouth to other people's ears and make them into people who hunger for such peace and equivalence and safety and the pursuit of what is true. And as a result of that, the city and the nation would become a dwelling place of the righteous. But it's not going to be because we say we're going to go do it. It's going to be because we just be the church again. It's going to be because we just be the people who cry out for mercy, who don't think that the country is the thing that ultimately matters. And that is really what this comes down to. And, and this time of year is the greatest test of all. I mentioned the plastic in the stores. And again, I, I, just, I have a beef with plastic. That's my thing. But, but like, have you noticed, like, there's no Jesus there. This whole thing, they still call it Christmas. They tried not to. They still knew. There's no Jesus there. And it's such a distraction. So much time, so much effort. Go do this, go do that. Got to be busier, busier, busier. How's the economy going? And, and did you read the Bible today? No, I mean, it's Sunday, so I made you, yeah? But, but is it there in your life? And if it is, God bless you, keep it up, right? That's what this is here to do for us. It's, it's make us ask to restart, to reset. It's Advent. Jesus is coming again. Hey, let's wake up. Let's commit our tongues and our hearts to what is true and stop letting the wars and rumors of wars all around us distract us far more important than whether or not our nation's going to collapse is whether or not our congregation survives 30 years. I think we will, but I don't want to tell you we will based on us. The reason we will is because we're going to hear the word of God and we're going to keep it. We're going to make it our measuring line. We're going to make it our target we're going to stand upon it in all that comes our way and trust that the God who is able to stop the Rapshika at the gates of Jerusalem and send him running away with all his army is able to do what he needs to do for us in this place to both be saved on the last day and to see that salvation coming down from heaven, going out of us to others who come and join us at this altar. Yeah. Isaiah chapter two through five, You just sat through it, okay? That was rough, huh? I hope you still love me, <laughs> uh, I, I, but I'm not going to tell you something other than what it says. Right? Next week we get chapter seven, and it's it's kind of rough too, but it's a great story. I and mean, you're going to get that whole Emmanuel stuff coming your way. So you sat through the hard part, you know, kind of. I don't want to say unbuckle. Stay buckled in, but come back next week ready for a little more, a little more rejoicing, a little more hope uh, as a result of Isaiah's preaching. Yeah, in the name of Jesus.